Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. This episode is also sponsored by the official Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. All new starships in a larger size format and officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and receive the USS Buran for only $9.95 with free shipping. For details, visit herocollector.com slash missionlog and sign up with the promo code MISSION. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 366, Luddy Who is Without Sin. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we examine an episode of Star Trek, picking it apart for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing whether or not the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, let he who is without sin... John, where... um, I, don't, I don't see the reason why you have to tell every listener every single detail of our show at the very beginning... If you're a Klingon podcaster... Uh, in case you haven't noticed, I'm not a Klingon podcaster. That's no excuse. That's no excuse. I've been loyal to you, and I expect you to be loyal to me in return. I have been loyal to you, but I'm not going to let you run how I talk in our podcast. Fine. I'll just get to the contact information then. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, we'll get to trivia in just a moment, but first a quick word from Eagle Moss and the officially authorized CBS Studios Star Trek Discovery Starships Collection. Uh, they're available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector, and you know what these are because you've heard us talk about them and how much we dig mm -hmm. them. This special collection features brand new ship concepts and designs from both seasons of CBS's Star Trek Discovery and will include ships from the upcoming Season 3. Now, each one has gone through extensive reference study and has been reproduced under the supervision of, 
He's my favorite Star Trek expert. I hope he's yours, Ben Robinson, <laughs> for accuracy and detail. No disrespect meant to any other Star Trek expert. There are many in my well, especially life. Especially with these models, because the first thing you'll notice about receiving yes. your first ship, which will be the USS Buran, the NCC-1422, it's the larger size. It's the, it's the nine-inch size from the front of the saucer section to the rear of the quad style nacelles, which are super cool looking to look at. These are like the ones you put on your desk mm-hmm. to look very professional and maybe a little bit evil like Admiral Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and I love the fact that they are so high quality because, you know, sometimes we have an issue with like displaying our fandom like in public or at the office. And when you put something like this quality on your, on your you know, tabletop or on your credenza, you can't help but like be a, a showstopper piece because they're so nice. And every ship in this collection are in this larger scale. They're made of that same die-cast metal and ABS materials, like in their smaller ship formats and hand-painted the same way with reference, like from Ben Robinson, to the actual CG models used in production. Now, each ship also comes with a display base. That display base, when you turn it over, it actually has the name of your ship, just in case you forget which ship it is. I don't think you will. <laughs> Plus a uh, collector's <laughs> magazine featuring all those really cool behind-the-scenes tidbits and sketches and technology specs, which we love to digest all the time. Yes. Now, Eagle Moss are good to us, and they're good to you. And you can start your collection with the Cardenas-class USS Buran NCC-1422, Destroyed by a Captain Lorca. Lorca, what were you doing in the opening episodes of Star Trek Discovery? Now, it's available to subscribers through this special mission log offer for only $9.95 with free shipping when you go to herocollector.com slash mission log and sign up with the promo code mission at checkout. So additional models, including the iconic USS Discovery, that would be NCC-1031, and the USS Corella, NCC-1255, the reimagined Klingon Bird of Prey. There are so many in that collection. Those will ship to you monthly at an exclusive 20% discount off the standard retail price, also with free shipping. But wait, John, there's more. There's more. There's always more. There's always more. So subscribers to this program are also entitled to free gifts, which are incredible, and they're worth over $100. And if you would like to cancel your subscriptions, you can do so at any time. If for any reason you are not happy with your product, I don't see why, because they're pretty darn awesome. But full <laughs> details for all of this can be found at www.herocollector.com slash mission log. And if you'd like to purchase your ships separately, you can do so either online at shop.eaglemoss.com or you can go to your local comic book shop and buy them for the regular price of $54.95 each. Now, John, you have my permission to talk to the audience as long as you don't dishonor this week's trivia. Oh, that's so generous of you, Norman. This week's trivia for Let He who is without sin. We have a story and teleplay by Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt-Wolf, two of our, our strongest and most prolific writer-producers on DS9, known for their insight, their depth of character, their cracking dialogue and wit. So how do they feel about this episode? Well, let's save that for the end of the show, shall we? 
This is directed by René Aubergenois, and we've talked a little before about René's on-again, off-again passion for directing. He stated many times how he found it difficult, though some episodes were much better experiences for him in the director's chair. Uh, This is one of those episodes that was a little more difficult than others, and a lot of that has to do with location shooting. Now, you know that I always like to point out locations when we get them. Uh, This time, we're at a beach near Malibu, California, and this is certainly one of those times during production where it almost doesn't matter how beautiful the place is or how small or how big a budget you have, location shooting will always bring with it its own set of complications. Uh, This time, the weather was unpredictable, as it is many times. It was hotter than expected, which happens, as we've heard before in other episodes. And with a lot of sunlight, you also have to account for the people who will be under it all day long. Uh, Terry Farrell, in particular, very sensitive to sunlight, and the crew and cast all needed covering, you know, tents and everything to protect them. Uh, Somehow they were short on these, and that left Rene as director to run around to hunt down extra tents just to protect one of his stars. it's, It's that kind of thing that is absolutely a reality on production that crops up and can set a show behind uh, by a day or more. So let's talk about guest stars, shall we? Well, we get to welcome back Chase Masterson as Lita. There's a Bolian who is part of the New Essentialists, and he is played by Frank Kopik. He has a strong background in theater, but it's interesting to point out here that he, uh, one of his best friends is none other than Armin Shimmerman. And Armin even says that he based a bit of Quark on Frank. So kind of nice to uh, see them be able to work together here. We have Vanessa Williams as the Rysian Andaris. She is an actor, singer, designer, model, and Miss America with a long and diverse career. Uh, I have to point out that her TV acting debut was in The Love Boat, and her uh, TV career went on to include many guest, recurring, and regular roles on hit series. Uh, she even earned three Emmy nominations for her role on Ugly Betty. And one of the most important moments in her career was becoming the first Miss America of African-American descent, and that was for the year 1984. Unfortunately, her reign was cut short when she was pressured to resign after nude photos of her were published. The good news is that in 2016, she was a judge on Miss America and got a public apology from the former president of the organization, Sam Haskell. And uh, Norman, here's where I left a note to myself to editorialize in our Mm -hmm. trivia, uh, because, hey, it's our show and it's our prerogative. Um, I remember that very well, and I remember that it was ridiculous then. It's ridiculous now in retrospect, of course. I am glad that she got the vindication that she got. And um, the more I thought about it, kind of an interesting parallel to uh, part of the, the thematic content of this show, to have the, uh, the moralizers who step in with their judgment, uh, only hopefully to be proven wrong here in the end. So, um, yeah, good on you, Vanessa. Also, do, I believe that she started to kind of bring back her career with the, I guess, the Academy Award-nominated song from Pocahontas. It was her that sang that. Yeah, 
Yeah, very good. I mean, she, look, I, I have to hand it to her. You know, this is somebody who in the face of quote unquote scandal did incredibly well, really uh, just uh, through her talent had this incredible, still has this incredible career. Um, and it just short, sort of shows the the ridiculousness of uh, the this sort of judgment and shame that came out of something that should not have been treated as such. But you know what? At the end of the day, she wins. So good for her. I have a lot of respect. Finally, Monte Markham appears here as Pascal Fullerton. Now, here's another actor with a very recognizable face and voice. Monty has been kicking around TV since the mid-60s and has appeared in some truly iconic shows as a guest star. Six Million Dollar Man, Love American Style, The Mod Squad, Hawaii Five O, Dallas, just to name a very few. He also made a successful jump behind the camera in the 90s. He and his family formed a production company that has been working all over the world in commercial and documentary content. Uh, they've produced dozens of episodes for A&E and similar networks. Shows like Biography, and if you know me, which I assume you do at this point, one of my favorite shows, Great Ships, that is from his company. Oh, and here's a fun bit of info. Monty's first professional on-screen credit is Mission Impossible. He did three episodes playing a character named Tosk, not to be confused with Tosk from DS9, Captive Pursuit. Let's talk about Dax Baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things if you were a Klingon woman. Prologue. Sitting around at the replimat, Odo and Sisko discuss the personal lives of their crewmates. There's the O'Briens, considering naming their upcoming baby Sean, which unfortunately translated to Swamp in Bajoran. Then there's Dax and Worf, who are so uh, physically active that they land in the infirmary with alarming regularity. Speak of the rambunctious couple, there's Dax now and Worf soon after. They're planning a little trip to the pleasure planet Risa, definitely something out of step for the uptight Klingon, and he seems particularly on edge since Dax had lunch the other day with an ex-lover. They've got some stuff to discuss in private. Although the trip there won't be super private, Dr. Bashir and Lita have invited themselves along, but they promise they'll make themselves scarce once they get to the destination. Oh, just one more thing, though. The only way to get any time off from Quark's bar meant Lita had to invite Quark to come along, too. Act 1. It's a long ride on the runabout to Ryza, but plenty of time for Quark to hand out the requisite horgons to everyone who might be seeking Jamaharan. Use your imagination there if you must. Those are for everyone but Worf, because he still seems bent on not having a good time, even while those around him do, like Lita and Bashir canoodling, Dax shedding the Starfleet uniform, Quark doing Quark stuff. They're all just full of anticipation. Once they've arrived, our crew take no time acclimating to this perfect, climate-controlled beach paradise. Well, everyone except Worf, who is still in uniform but he manages to sneak in a sweet compliment to Dax. 
When they kiss, they're interrupted by one of Dax's, well, previous Dax host's friends, Arandis. She's been on Rise a while and has some seniority. She even recounts the time that Curzon Dax was there with her and she killed him, death by Jamaharon. Again, use your imagination. At least Curzon died with a smile on his face. A smile is not what Worf has on his face, though, as he puts the pieces together. Dax is ready to have a good time and asks the Klingon to relax, put on a swimsuit, but he seems determined not to do so. She reminds him. She's loyal to him, but he's not there to run her life. And as if to prove it, Dax announces that she's going to have a glass of Ikeberry juice, to which she is allergic. When Worf goes up to his room, he's visited by Pascal Fullerton from the New Essentialist Movement, who invites Worf to a rally later in the day. The New Essentialists are there to proclaim their desire to restore the moral and cultural traditions of the Federation, and they intend to start by shutting down Ryza. Act 2. Worf got some literature from the Essentialists, and he won't put it down, which is definitely frustrating Dax. But we should check in with Lita, who is getting a massage and definitely flirting with the masseur, who is definitely not Dr. Bashir. Dax and Worf walk in on them by accident, and it's Worf who gets indignant, of course, while Dax reminds him it's none of their business. It's also none of their business when they spot Bashir kissing one of the Rysians just a few minutes before Fullerton is due to give his speech at the New Essentialist rally. Aranda sort of shrugs it off, as if anyone would have the power to stop the millions of people coming to Ryza to have fun. Worf isn't so sure, though. He notes that one man, like Kalas, can take on a whole army, and he's there to be invigorated by this speech. It's time for the speech, and Fullerton basically accuses the people on Ryza of being weak children who won't be able to take care of themselves if they got attacked by the Borg or anyone else. They have it too easy, and they need to return to the old ways before it's too late. Later, in a lounge, Bashir tells Worf it's nonsense, but Worf is getting more and more sold on this whole idea. Conquerors will look for weakness. Just look at the Klingon Empire attacking the Federation. The same thing could happen on Ryza. They're joined soon by Lita, who is looking for Julian, and when she gives him a quick kiss, of course, it's Worf who is beside himself again. He comes right out and says their actions dishonor each other. But he doesn't know the whole story. You see, the Doctor and Lita are going through the rite of separation. Their romantic relationship is over, but it's Bajoran tradition to ease out of it by, well, seeing some other people, remembering the good times, maybe revisiting each other one last time, or more than one last time, as they're about to do now, privately. Worf doesn't get this either. And Dax reassures him that every breakup doesn't need to be as dramatic as Klingon opera. There's no time to discuss it, though. A melee erupts when members of the new essentialists start violently tearing up the place and draw a phaser rifle on Dax and Worf. Act 3. Dax and Worf watch in disbelief as Fullerton's cronies smash up the place. But it's only a bit of theater. The phasers aren't even charged. 
It was just an opportunity for Fullerton to make a speech about how this could have happened at the hands of the Jem'Hadar or Klingons, and nobody here is prepared. Dax is incensed. Worf, well, he may not like the methods, but he does get the point of what they did. Later that night, Worf is still in a mood, and he needs to have a talk with Dax. She's impulsive, free-spirited, and he's... not. He wishes she'd be more serious about him, about them. She wishes he'd loosen up. The next day, the Rysians are putting things back together after last night's demonstration. Dax confides in Arandus that this vacation isn't exactly going so well, and Arandus reminds Dax that there's still a bit of Curzon in her. He was someone who loved Risa and definitely knew how to enjoy himself. Let's catch up with Lita and Dr. Bashir, who are finalizing their separation in a pretty dull ceremony. There's a broken dish, a few words, that's it. Quark, as the witness, is disappointed that there is no excitement, no revelations, no heightened drama at the end of the relationship. Now that it's all cleared up and in the past, Lita does admit to one thing. In the past few months with Julian, she's actually been thinking about someone else. Someone unexpected, perhaps? Quark's brother, Rom. Yeah, she's got her eye on the Ferengi. Quark and Bashir are both stunned and a little bewildered, but it's Quark who hands off his Horgon to the doctor. He's going to need it more. Dax is participating in that age-old pastime of giggling while sensual clay sculpting with Arandus when the two are spotted by Worf. He is not pleased. He's so not pleased, he goes back to his room and smashes a Horgon against the wall. That's just the motivation he needs to find Fullerton and his goons who are plotting the next aggression against Ryza, and Worf says that he knows a way to force the people to leave Ryza. Act 4. Dax is commiserating with Kork and Bashir, who just doesn't get what she sees in Worf. She likes him, though, his courage, his heart of a poet. But at the moment, he's nowhere to be found, as Arandus reports. Then they notice something very strange for Ryza. A thunderstorm. But wait, isn't Ryza perfectly climate-controlled? Something must be wrong with the weather grid. These four convene with several other Rysian guests who are suitably concerned, and Arandus assumes it's some kind of malfunction until, well, you know who to expect now. Worf shows up with Fullerton and the rest of the new essentialists. He proudly admits that he is the one who disabled the weather control, and that means Ryza is in for its normal pattern of rain and storms until someone can fix it, which will take days. Fullerton then steps in to explain. Risa is a lie. It's manufactured with technology, and the Federation becomes more and more vulnerable every time it relies on toys until it gets back to the essentials. Worf's crewmates are not impressed with his little stunt here. Bashir accuses him of being out of his mind, but Worf says that he is quite rational. Just think... If we can't take some bad weather, how would we face an attack from a hostile force? The rains keep coming, and it's starting to take a toll on the Rysians and their guests. The mood is depressing. About a third of the guests have already left. Even Arandus is wondering now if Fullerton has a point. 
Worf says his goodbye to Fullerton. He feels like his work there is done, and departs by offering a sincere good luck. With Worf out of the room, Fullerton now has control of the weather uplink. He knows the problem will soon be fixed, and the people of Ryza will forget this ever happened. And in that case, he intends to send a message they'll never forget. Act 4. Jadzia finds Worf now in their room in a contemplative mood, and she calls him out for what he's done. From her point of view, this has very little to do with any concern over the security of the Federation, and everything to do with his jealousy of her, her freedom, her association with Arandus. And at no point did he stop to ask Jadzia or offer up trust. Then Worf goes for the surefire way to win the argument, with a heartfelt, sympathetic story about his troubled childhood. That time on the small farming planet where he was raised, when he accidentally killed another child when headbutting a ball to score a goal in soccer. See, all he wants to do is protect those weaker than him, like humans, because he cares so much. Jedzia says she understands, and all she wants from him is some trust. This tender moment interrupted by an earthquake, though. And yes, it's an earthquake being created and controlled by Fullerton. He'll shake this whole place to the ground until Worf comes in and demands that he hand over the uplink. Fullerton grudgingly does so, but not without speechifying a bit. Doesn't Worf see? If he turns his back on the movement, then the Federation will grow softer and never survive any outside threat. They need to return to their traditional values if they want to survive. Worf says the value they need to embrace, though, is trust. With the drama over, Worf and Dax take a beachside stroll to say their goodbyes to Arandus. Even after all this, they're still welcome back on Ryza. This being their last night, Worf suggests that they watch the sun's set. But Dax has a better idea. How about they go for a swim? even though Worf still doesn't have his bathing suit with him. Exactly. The end. Thank you for not dishonoring me with that review and recap, John. And I just wanted to say, I'm, I'm so impressed with your level of restraint when it comes to not editorializing too much during your recap. So here's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you something special. I'm going to get oh, you a nice. large a large prude juice. I mean prune oh, juice. Oh, oh, whoa, hey, calling Dr. Freud. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes, well, I will enjoy that. Uh, well done. Hey, hey, let, let's talk about some of the things that we liked. Uh, like, how about right off the top, Morn has a date. This set the tone for me for this entire episode. I loved that. Man of very few, if any words. (laughs) Apparently you can't get him to shut up, except every time we see him on camera. Uh, But that was lovely. Had the flower, had a, Mm -hmm. a lovely Starfleet officer. I hope they had a great night. So speaking of great nights Mm -hmm. and, you know, trips to the infirmary of which there were many, Mm -hmm. it, is a little gossipy, and I didn't really think Odo was kind of the gossipy type, to sit there in the replimat and talk about, hey, uh, what do you think they broke this time, Captain Sisko? Yeah, I, so I thought about that too. And, and I was thinking, like, how much leeway do you give people that you work with? Like, it's one thing 
if you're working, oh, if it's the 20th or 21st century, you're at your office job, you work at a store or whatever, and, and, and you're gossiping about your coworkers, like flat out, straight up wrong. There's something about this 24th century thing, though, where it's people, some who are directly in a chain of command with each other, some who are not living and working together in this specific space on DS9 and have become friends. It's like, where do you draw that line of professionalism versus fraternizing with your with your crewmates with, with and in Cisco's case your employees essentially um that that was a, an odd moment and, and I kind of wanted Cisco to say like eh, this is an uncomfortable conversation for me to have with you um at the same time he is super tight with Dax they yeah. they've known each other for so long it it was I I really wondered if anybody was going to mention that but apparently they're all cool with just having these very open conversations about each other. Well, Dax yeah. is for sure. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. she, she does, she cares not. And that's kind of the whole point of, you know, her, her thrust in this episode. But there was also that, I remember we were talking about like the cringiness uh, between Bashir and O'Brien when, when Bashir asked O'Brien after bathing Kira, you know, did you sneak a peek? You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of like in that same yeah. kind of tone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they all need to have maybe a little sensitivity training, <laughs> you know, I just like I hear things that are on limits or off limits unless you've asked. OK, let's assume that that was an off camera moment where Dax and Odo and Cisco, they all sat down like we're cool with each other. Right. It's OK if we talk about our personal lives with each other. OK, fine. Go right ahead. I just never, I never felt that anyone had that kind of tightness where like, like Cisco and Dax, where they can just look at each other and like, remember that time, that one time we did that one thing. Yeah. 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 That was like that time, you know, that shorthand. It's, it's a different atmosphere and, and I don't want to make it too on the nose, but like, can you imagine at one of their casual breakfast get togethers, uh, Captain Picard and Dr. Crusher, talking about, say, Riker, Indiana, Troy's personal life. Mm. Yeah. I will say at that conversation, though, I'm a sort of a twisted individual, but I like the idea of using names that have other meanings in different languages. I, I say that the O'Briens should go with Sean and they should be uh, uh, amused and entertained at the idea that that means swamp in Bajoran. Swamp O'Brien. I'm swamp O'Brien. Let's make it yeah. happen. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> You know, here's here's something that kind of pops up in these episodes from time to time, uh, which I find problematic is when did Lita and Bashir like have such a close relationship to the point where they insert themselves into somebody else's vacation plan so they can break up in the traditional Bajoran way? Were they ever that serious? I never saw it that way. Uh, Me either. Like they they certainly indicated uh, an intimacy there or I should say an interest there mm-hmm. and there, there was that one reference to uh, you know had Bashir saying oh you know Lita's told me a lot about this Bajoran thing this Bajoran custom or whatever but that that is one of those things you kind of need to show like you kind of need to at least have some scenes in the previous few episodes what whatever are they 
at dinner together, something, just something to indicate it. Because honestly, in those few moments with her sort of flirting with Rom, yeah, that paid off here. But I was just more on board with like, oh, now she and Rom are a thing. The, that whole moment with, with Bashir barely even happened. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I found it, since they made it such a point to steal time away from other characters in this episode to develop the story and the dialogue and, and the production aspects of it, where's the payoff of it? And you're right. When, when Lita mentioned Rom later on, it's like, yeah, I saw that coming. You know, go all the way back to Bar Association. I saw that coming. Yeah. Um, but getting back to this, you know, the Jadzia and Worf dynamic. So that their their opening lines really kind of did set the tone because it's kind of like, okay, you know that you know those days where parents argue and you're like, uh, you kind of absorb that energy, that negative energy. Yeah, right. When right. when when yeah. Dax and Worf had that interchange at the very beginning, I'm like, okay, that literally colored my entire experience with this episode. You don't want to be around them. Yeah. And it's just awkward. And yeah, I get it. You know, they're, they're a new couple. They're working things out, but there's no conversation there. Zero. It's not it. It's a very one-sided, you know, this is what you should do. And this is how you should respect me. I'm like, Oh, that's the way this episode's going to yeah. go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. But uh, that said, I will give Worf props for two things. Uh, one is that his do not hug me it, again, master of the one liner. Sure. Like when, sure. when they get the right one liner, his delivery, boom, absolutely perfect. Also Worf, the sweet talker with his description of the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. It, it was sweet, but it was also comedic. The way he's describing it's like, I was on this mission and then I saw this thing happen with uh, the brightly colored lights and the stars because he's so just by the book here mm-hmm. and then follows it up with the right sweet line. Not yes. delivered in a sentimental way, delivered the way Worf would deliver it, but it was a great setup. So I, in this episode, I will give him those two things. Well, it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen until he walked in on Lita. Yeah, yeah, Right. 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 Yeah. Because that was kind of like a jaw dropping, you know, reaction cut. I'm like, yeah, OK, mm-hmm. let's 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 move along from yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to get this out of the way because I know that um, I don't want to to be uh, disparaging about every single thing that I say about this episode. Mm-hmm. And I want to be fair to what happened in the 1990s. This is 1996 or seven, seven, uh, six, I think. I double check. Yeah. So. In this episode, obviously one of the most memorable moments is seeing Terry Farrell in a in a swimsuit. That's there's an obvious sexualization that's happening in this episode. Her, uh, Chase Masterson, Vanessa Williams in skimpy uh, swimsuits. I mean, that's just okay. Mm-hmm. And and when people say that Star Trek doesn't get sexualized, I'm not even going to go there. We don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. You know, but why not a shirtless Bashir, right? For for that matter, why not even like a shoulder, um, like a, a shoulder bearing quark? Like, why is a quark dressed like a toddler? Right, <laughs> right, know, right. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. The the choices of uh, resort leisure wear are really odd because again, to reference next gen, think back to Captain's Holiday, mm-hmm. Patrick Stewart looking great, right, in his swim trunks and then that uh, that robe that he loses. I mean. 
uh, yeah, yeah. I, it, it is a little too obvious here that, you know, look, in context, this is all fine. They're all at this resort that is sort of hypersexualized. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is the way people are going to look. But the, the guys look ridiculous. I mean, Bashir with the, uh, the, the sort of like... Uh, weird uh weightlifter pants with the the brightly patterned thing going on and then that kind of like terry cloth uh, with the striped shirt it's just terrible it's like <laughs> rising it's like rising and clam diggers right you know like, yeah yeah why uh, awful i look at, and i know it's an expensive thing to do but I think they should have gone for it and had Worf at some point. Like, I know part of the joke is to have him in his Starfleet uniform. But if you're mm-hmm. going to go there at the end and they say they're going to uh, skinny dip or whatever, at least give us a a shirtless Worf and do some Klingon makeup and and show us him w- without at least the top of that uniform on. Like, well, I, th- I mean, they did. They had the prosthetic from Kern. They they had yeah, that right. whole chest prosthetic. Right. And they could have modified that for Michael Dorn. Right, right. I mean, Tony Todd's a big dude. Yeah, right. Yeah, why not? Do it anyway. I yeah. mean, I'm getting caught up in my you know in my um, Klingon swimwear right now. So. <laughs> but no, but, but it, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it, it's worth it to say. Yeah, I mean, it, this is not an opposition to the idea that Star Trek would have sexualized content. It's not an opposition to the idea that in that context you would have female characters and something appropriate for the scene but it feels way off balance when mm. the men are like in these cartoonish outfits <laughs> really i mean i think is. it was done to do some type of like you know like tonal point obviously in yeah. this episode yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but i you know what it, it is interesting to me that i would say it's kind of funny how every time star trek wants to show us rest and relaxation like a leisure planet it's very often a beach or a forest, it's nature, which is cool. And I, and I don't disagree. A lot of people vacation like that, where they want to go to some place that, that gives them an experience with nature because they don't always get it. Um, and particularly here, we have people who live on a space station or other times we followed people who live on a spaceship. It did make me wonder, though, like in the future, how, how do the people who are around nature all the time, how do they take a vacation? So remember on, on Buck Rogers, you know, they had the cruise ship to the stars because yeah. presumably some people don't just live on starships. So I would think that being in a starship in space would also be a pretty awesome way to unwind. Yeah, like, like, I, I would want that. I, I would like, wow, I, I can spend two weeks in a, in a spaceship that has replicators and holodecks and at this amazing view of planets and nebula and pulsars. And I want that. <laughs> Right. Well, it's kind of like what do you know? What do cruise on like like the big cruise ships, like you know your mm-hmm. NCLs, you know, or yeah, the, yeah, you know, like the, the, the Disney cruise ships. What do they do for fun? Since their job is being on the sea, <laughs> right, right. So if they don't want to be on a sea based vacation, like where do they go? They, they probably do things like you know, I don't know, go to malls or. Yeah. Go see castles and things like that. Go, go hang out in an office building all day. Like, wow, this is so exotic. <laughs> this, is, this is what it's like when the ground doesn't move underneath <laughs> yeah. us. Right. So I wanted to bring up Riza because Riza obviously is it's the, it's the, you know, set du jour, you know, for this episode. And uh, to quote to quote Riker from Captain's Holiday. So let's mm-hmm. just kind of like, you know, describe Riza. Riza, he says, quote, this place is called Riza. And believe me, Captain, it is a paradise. Warm tropical breezes, exotic foods. Nothing to do but sit around all day. 
great. sit yeah sit around quotes. all day yeah but if they have holodeck technology that can replicate anything why do you have to go anywhere especially since Ryza is a federation based uh, vacation extravaganza you know it's yeah. like going to it's like let's go to sands but we're right next to like the greatest beach on earth but over there is just sand so let's go over there for our beach experience and not just hang out say like you know on our back porch which is a beach right it it, right. it just seems like where where is it like where's the appeal to go yeah. to this planet where it's basically everything that you want but you actually have to go to the planet and it is to an extent manufactured which the holodeck is manufacturing as well for you it's manufacturing that perfect climate and the sand and the the water and everything else you want i will say though that i i think there is there is probably still a value in the 24th century to having um a quote unquote natural experience like oh i went to the actual place as opposed to a simulation of that place even though the two are completely indistinguishable um i would also think the other thing is well, what about that possibility of meeting real people who are are their own person, who have their own motivations, who have their own backstories, and then maybe make a real friend like Curzon Dax did with Arandis? You know, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily get out of a holodeck unless you're Riker and you meet Minuet. <laughs> but right, yeah. uh, but but at the same time, though, it seems like everyone that went to Riza wanted to go there for privacy, right? So mm-hmm. you know they didn't really want to mingle unless you're, you know, say like you know Lita mingling with her masseur, you know. And yeah, vice- yeah, but you can yeah. do that on the holodeck too, like minuet. Yeah. So <laughs> right. I, I just I don't know. Like when you have something as as completely sophisticated, and you can do anything. You can go to the Battle of Britain. You can fight Vikings. Yeah. You can do all this stuff. You can even, you know, you can you can recreate the entire Klingon battle of of the first emperor of the Klingon Empire. Right. You know. Right. And you have to go to a planet for you know. Because, yeah, yeah, right. You know, yeah, I know it's that's... a it's a it's a real serious sticking point that I have, but it's just one of those things. Like, it would have been better if, like, say, there's something on Ryza that just can't get replicated, like something in the atmosphere or something that like, like alters your mood, something natural to the planet, yeah, that you can't synthesize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it's uh, I, if I had to come up with an answer, I think it's about the people. But mm. as far as just an experience, it's like, yeah, you could hop on a holodeck anytime you want. And don't I know what if I had a holodeck? I would. Mm. All right. There was a funny thing to me. Uh, Dax, 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 Dax. Don't you know that sensual pottery work is exactly the kind of thing that will set off your boyfriend? <laughs> that was that was a funny moment to me because it was just like, oh, okay, the writers saw a ghost. And they just were like, okay, here's the sensual moment we'll park in our episode. See, I got ghosts and I got kind of like that whole uh, Mr. Furley, like walking into the the weird out of context moment in Three's Company. Like, what are you two doing? Yes. yes, Like Don uh Knotts looking at the camera with that Don Knotts, you know, wry look on his face or Mr. Roper, the great Norman fell in the same breath. That's nice. just, yeah, it's just like, oh, that's this episode, too. It's all about seeing people that you trust without trust out of context. Yes, yes. Ah, uh, yes. A uh, couple of funny Ferengi moments. Uh, I love that Quark says they have 178 words for rain, and right now it's lemoning. 
That's, <laughs> just, that's awesome. It's just a, a, a really clever throwaway. And then uh, humidity ruins food. There's no word for crisp on Ferenginar. I thought both of those were just gold moments. He did the best he could with the material he was mm-hmm. given. You know, kudos yep. to Armin totally. for for owning his scenes. Uh, you know, on Risa being a Federation colony, so... Let's say that um, I go to a resort and I'm mm-hmm. a pretty, you know, good uh, hacker. Does that mean like I can just hack into like the systems and you know, kind of like turn the vacation that I want to, like to my whim? You know, because literally that's what Worf did. He ruined the vacation for everybody uh, on that planet yeah. because he could hack into it. That's that's like what? And if you and if one person can do that, I don't think you have to worry about the Borg. <laughs> Ruining your vacation. Right. Right? Yeah. You're right. You can have some, like, you, know, you can have some whiz kid like Chekhov or, or Wesley just come in. You know what? I don't dig this, man. You know, I, I think I'm going to, like, you know, bust out my tricorder and just trash everything because I feel like it. That's a very good point. Oh, hey, uh, Worf's whole childhood planet, he says it, it was a small farming uh, planet where they only had 20,000 inhabitants, yet there were enough school-age kids to have soccer teams and have a soccer championship. I, how, how, how does that go? It's like the same three schools every year, just like fighting it out. Like, I mean, 20,000 inhabitants, how many of those are school-age? How many of those are actually playing soccer at any given time? Come on. Come on. And at the same time, though, if you know that... So you have this kind of like small inhabited world and you have these same kids going to the same x amount of schools Mm -hmm. you would think that you know it's kind of like uh when i played sports there was always the intelligence on what i mean like gathered intelligence or the data on your best player the best biggest strongest fastest person and then you would actually plan accordingly in your strategy to take out that person or to isolate them or to neutralize them that would have been the coaches with like you see that guy the only klingon on this planet we got to do something about this guy yeah for real right for real yeah. Hey, uh, I hand it to Worf again at the end of the episode. Very impressive one-armed lift that he uh, that he does there with Fullerton. There's nice, uh, nice effect there. Nice moment. Well, I mean, you know, he's pretty impressive when he's actually pumping irony. Does Dax really love Worf, or does she tease him relentlessly just to get a rise out of him? Hey, we will get back to sin in a moment but first a word from mint mobile so years ago john years ago maybe decades ago i got my first cell phone it was fantastic i mean who didn't want you know a cell phone if you if you could afford the plan because the plans were pretty expensive my very first cell phone was actually inspired by the phones they used on the x files it was a nokia version that Mulder and Scully. Used oh, right on. X-Files. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And, and if I recall correctly, because I remember, I remember getting the first digital cell phone that I could get. And the whole idea is that they would practically give away the phone because mm-hmm. then the plan was so expensive. Like they didn't exactly. care how expensive the phone was. Just get locked into a plan for years and years and years, which I did. I kept it going like you for decades. That's like the the old sales strategy of don't sell them the razor, sell them the razor blades. And yes. The razor blades really was that that expensive monthly program of which you were tied into a literally almost unbreakable contract. So you had this really nice phone, you had this really expensive plan, and you really couldn't do anything about it just because you needed to shift your finances at the time. 
So this is where Mint Mobile comes in because when I looked at it, when you got me involved with it, I looked at it and I said, you know what? I can save money. I can cut down the fraction of my bill to 15 bucks a month mm-hmm. and save hundreds, hundreds of dollars by switching over to Mint Mobile. So if anyone's out there who's looking to save without sacrificing quality of service, switch to Mint Mobile. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, and what I love about that then is that you can justify the cost of the phone that you want because there are so many phones on the market. They have so many different features. And the costs on a lot of those, well, they're not cheap. But now I'm actually putting the money into the phone that I want, and I'm not getting gouged on the service. So if you're like me, if you're somebody who hated your wireless bill because it just seemed exorbitant, Mint Mobile, well, it offers premium wireless service starting at 15 bucks a month. That cost is much easier to swallow for me. So here's what you do. You go online and you are eliminating the traditional cost of you know retail stores, uh, all that expensive marketing. Mint Mobile then passes on that savings to you. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. Plus it's fast, you get 4G LTE. And like I was saying before, you get to keep your phone, pick your phone, keep it and mint mobile allows you to uh carry over your number your contacts all that content so you're just switching your plan nothing else changes best part of all if you're not 100 percent satisfied mint mobile has got you covered they've got a seven day money back guarantee and you can switch to them now to get that premium service for 15 bucks a month Now, John, something that the listeners may not know, even if they are a part of the Mint Mobile plan, and if you're not, this is how you're going to get involved, use the app. The app is fantastic. And what I did with the app was that I got Carol on the plan. She's all on Mint Mobile. And now I can use the app and their family plan managing app uh, software to manage her data and my data from my phone. So now I have her on Mint Mobile, I'm on Mint Mobile, but now everything is kind of taken care of in the admin process on the ad. So that's really fantastic. It's easy to use. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mission log. That's mintmobile.com slash mission log. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, here we go. Let he who is without sin um, finally, finally, Star Trek comes along with some interesting views on sex, love, and relationships in the 24th century, including interspecies relationships. <laughs> I'm, I'm building this up to be better than it is. No, I mean, I, I do want to give this show props uh, while, while we start our in-depth discussion here, because th- there's at least thematically some stuff that I think is pretty interesting, and we can debate whether or not they actually got there in, in having a, a, a strong enough, powerful enough statement about it. But the thing that struck me is that you know, they're taking on a pretty old and and pretty constant back and forth that we find in our culture. Ever since people figured out how to have fun, to find that however you like, there was somebody waiting in the wings who was outraged through moral indignation and just had to put a stop to the shenanigans. 
And and who can say what motivates it? Uh, interpretation of their religious views, maybe uneasiness, just a personal uneasiness with sex, their fear of losing control in the world around them, not looking or behaving exactly as they think it should. That is clearly what Fullerton is going through. I, you know, there are a couple of historical names that, that, that came to mind here for me. Fullerton representing people like John Harvey Kellogg uh, or even Carrie Nation who see their life's work as sort of herding people back into this narrow definition of what they think is moral and correct and true. You know, there is a truism here that for every social movement, there is always going to be pushback. For every bit of progress, there's always going to be some pressure from the other side to sort of get people back in line, quote unquote. Um, and what we see then is that those social movements then uh, they they may push forward very strong, but then there's always a pushback. You know, we look at uh, like the sexual revolution of the 60s, which had many influences and many reasons for happening when it did. But then by the time you get to the 80s, there is a strong conservative pushback. And again, for many sort of uh, not just ideological, but also real world uh, influences on that. You know, John, you said you were a fan of the Back to the Future trilogy, and, and mm -hmm. the way you describe that is exactly how Lorraine Bates, that became Lorraine mm -hmm. McFly, was. She was younger, she was impulsive, she was living life with zest and gusto, and, you know, when she was in the car with Marty at the end, she drank and she smoked, and then it gets to 1985, 30 years later, because mm -hmm. you're talking about, like, say, the, the social movements of, like, the 1950s. Now you get to the mm -hmm. 1980s, where the kids become the parents and now the kids are doing their own way of rebelling and pushing against the system. Right. And the parents are like, oh, wait a second. They don't see themselves in their own kids. They don't yeah. see how they're challenging that system. Yeah. All they want to do is say, like, you're having too much fun. And I can't have that kind of fun anymore for social constraints or what have you. So you're not allowed to do that because I already know that I did it. And I know that my parents gave me a hard time for it. Because 30 years prior to that, their parents were the ones that were pushing that social envelope and so on and so on and so on. You know, yeah. so the yeah. social conformity and the social movements begat other pushbacks yeah. and so on and so yeah. on and so on. Absolutely. And, and I, I think it's worth saying that, you know, one extreme on either end is probably not the correct way to go. But we will always have that pushback a few steps forward, a few steps back, a few steps forward, a few steps back to hopefully then find what is the the overall broader, correct and moral place to be. Because completely extreme one end or the other leads to either chaos or complete authoritarian and, and control. Now, uh, part of the thing here, part of the, the flaw I felt like in Fullerton's argument is that he's accusing people on RISA of going soft and needing Starfleet's protection. But so far, we've only ever seen Starfleet personnel go to RISA. Like, we know that there are other people there from other places, but every time we've gone to RISA through the show, it's been through Starfleet personnel. Like, apparently RISA is a pretty popular place among Starfleet. Seems like a good trade-off. People put their lives at risk, these Starfleet officers, and then they earn a little R&R. &R. They, they are in the business of protecting planets like RISA and other planets that are under Federation or Starfleet protection. So uh, it, it, 
I, I, I don't get exactly where he's coming from. Like, that is part of the deal. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, let's, let, let's talk about Dax and let's talk about Worf. This is just uh, a mess to me. I think Dax is being much too forgiving of Worf. This is not her, in in my estimation of the scene. He is being jealous. He is being controlling. And, and it's not just that. It's not just about her. He literally sabotaged a peaceful planet. He put people at risk and generally was being a jerk. If I were her, I'd dump him. And I'd write up a report on his behavior because the dude does not listen or learn. And I'm sorry, but uh, as far as his heartbreaking story about accidentally killing a child on the soccer field, I don't buy it. I mean, I, I get that that could have happened in the logic of Star Trek and in the logic of, of Worf's upbringing. But I'm sorry, the reason I don't buy it is because your past trauma does not excuse your inexcusable behavior now, you jerk. <laughs> that's not you. That's Dwarf. And the thing is, is that his story doesn't even correlate to what they're talking about. No. It has no correlation at all. No. None. None. So I'm, uh, I- I'm infuriated by that. So I agree with you, John. And it's kind of like, you ever heard that saying, you need to take a vacation from your vacation? Yeah. Oh, God, they all deserve it now. Dax needs to take a vacation from her vacation. I mean, I don't get why Worf was specifically created to be such a Debbie Downer in this episode. Almost every single scene that he's in with every single conversation that he has with Dax, with the exception of paying her that one compliment, was you almost wanted it to follow up with that wah, wah. Yeah, yeah. And it's not just that he's a downer. I mean, I think he's outright abusive to his friends. You know, true. Uh, true, true, true. he's he's being so insufferable, so awful. He has no business being there. And look, transportation is easy in the 24th century. Go back to DS9. I mean, I, I could, could you imagine? Okay, you're uh, you're at. Uh, okay, sure, it, it's my vacation. You're at Disneyland. You're at Disneyland. You're checked into a hotel. You're there with a bunch of friends, and you're having a great... You're there for a week, but the one person who's having a bad time decides to do something like, oh, I don't know, poison the water system. (laughs) You know? I'm sorry. That person wasn't just unpleasant to be around. That person put others at risk. That person should, A, seek therapy, and B, probably uh, be dealt with by the authorities. Well, I think this is where like the biggest problem I have with this episode is, is that it's not just him trying to hash out his differences with Dax and their relationship. It is literally like Worf using his Starfleet authority to override every single person on that planet's, you know, their wants, needs, and desires. I mean, I'll be honest. There is a time in this episode where I was like, I was so exhausted with seeing him on screen, I almost turned off the episode. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, just, just yeah. to calm myself down. And I usually don't get that emotionally attached or emotionally involved in episodes of this nature. But it was so unbelievably obvious, like what they were trying to do and use him for. He was just literally a weapon in this episode to yeah. destroy everyone's fun everyone's fun and his intolerance for somebody who's supposed to be his his parmach whatever mm-hmm. is, so that's how this is gonna go i mean and 
I, I agree with you with Dex. I don't understand why they wrote this fantastic character who's been so independent, so strong, so capable, you know, so uh, of her, uh, like had so much agency over her own life and her own career yeah. that she just becomes the apologist for Worf every single scene oh, that yeah. they're in. Yeah. It's it's it drove me nuts because I love Dax. I, right. I love Terry Farrell as Dax and everything. Like, but he's so nice and he's so sweet. I'm like, you know what? I get gaslighting from other fiction. I don't need it in Star Trek. That's just. I'm sorry, folks. I know that you're probably going to get irate with me for being so <laughs> honest, but this episode really set me off. It really did. No, I'm right there with you. That is not the Dax I love, and this was such a, a botched opportunity to continue that with her to have this strong, independent, free spirited, and and deep character that she is, and, and really make a statement with her. But no, to to have her just sort of kowtow back to him, you know, oh, but but he's nice, which is essentially what it comes down to. No, no, I'm I'm sorry. I think it would have been a stronger statement, honestly, to have had their their passionate moment, which I, I love the way that unfolded. I loved her aggressive nature in that. But then for her to realize, like, oh, this is not the person that I thought he was. This cannot turn into the relationship that I thought it would. I'm done. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that would be perfectly fine. But at the same time, it goes back to when did we see Worf's heart of a poet? You know, when did we, or towards at least Jadzia. We saw mm-hmm. him do that with Quark, you know, with Quark and, uh, and, and looking for Parmok. But yeah. there are so many moments that we assume are happening behind the scenes that are trying to excuse or explain away what we're seeing on screen. Let's take Bashir and Lita. We never saw that relationship develop to the point where they needed to do this thing and go to Ryza and separate themselves. And it's the same thing with Worf and Dax. We never saw Dax and Worf have those moments where Dax would defend him for making so many extremely egregious decisions. So when those happen, you're kind of like... Am I missing something? Did I not see an episode or did I not see an entire season or did I not read a book? You know, that explains that. I mean, what part of the canon do I need to reference in order to make sense of this all? Yeah, yeah. And and I want Dax to be that strong person who could see Worf for who he is and what he's doing here. Because I'm sorry, Worf has had every opportunity— we don't just know him from DS9. We also know him from the seven years of Next Gen and mm-hmm. the movies in between that he has botched every opportunity to actually grow and be better. Yeah, he can be conflicted about his loyalties. He can be conflicted about his identity. But every opportunity that he's been handed to actually be the better person, it's like he has somehow made it worse in the process. We make jokes about him sort of uh, disavowing his family and just completely and outright forgetting his son, um, which uh, it truly makes him one of the worst father figures in Star Trek at all. But w- when it's right in front of him, he's right there in the room with somebody like Dax. And um, a- as you put it, you-, you know, you feel gaslit by this whole thing. It's, uh, it- it's inexcusable. And-, and I don't know if it's just a poor grasp of this relationship by the writers or if they needed to run this by somebody else to say, hey, what exactly are you doing with Dax here? Because this feels out of character, out of step for her. Or can we just end this now? 
Can we just decide that this is not the way to go with these characters? Well, the thing is, is that I, I believe the issue with this episode is that you're dealing with two very um, huge, I mean, huge moral topics. You have this relationship topic, and then you have this topic of who gives the new essentialists the right to be able to decide the moral fabric of Starfleet. Those are, like, they're enormous uh, points to tackle in one episode with all of the different permutations of how they fit in each character's dynamic not just with each other, but with, you know, the overall plot line of this kind of like the pseudo, you know, uh, moral terrorist organization that's on Ryza. So, I mean, really, the only thing that was missing from Fullerton and his crew were like pitchforks and pilgrim hats. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. They were so cartoonish caricature yes. versions of, of that kind of a movement. There was no insidious nature. There was no cunning involved. It was just, uh, you guys are bad. We're good. Yeah. And you're soft and we're not. And the Borg are going to come and get you in your sleep and, and if we can do it, they can too. I'm like, well, the board can do pretty much anything they want. Terrible example. Sure. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But who gave Fullerton and Worf the right to dictate how people live their lives? Who gave them the right to ruin their vacation? Are they going to reimburse these people from the Federation for all that time off? The money they spent, the emotional uh, pain or their, their, uh, the distraught nature of these people going back from a rain-soaked vacation that they've been looking for the entire year. Like you said... I went to Disneyland and all I got was a, you know, a, a poisoned milkshake. Yeah. That's terrible. <laughs> right. 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 And what about the non-Federation right. people? I mean, Worf, basically, he, he decides to do this because he just wants to. Yeah. Yeah. And he just wants to get back at his girlfriend. You know, the, it, right. it's, uh, it, I mean, look, it, it does illustrate that people will make bad decisions for bad reasons, whereas Fullerton feels like he's driven by this uh, hyper-moralistic ideology that he has. Worf is sort of sucked into it because he's emotionally vulnerable because he's arguing with Dax. Well, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, Worf, that just continues to expose how weak you are internally if, uh, if that's how you act out. It's incredibly childish. Um, and then for a guy like uh, Fullerton, well, I mean, he illustrates this streak of Puritanism that raises its head in American history and, and other histories as well. But I'm speaking from the point of view of being in the U.S. But it, it raises its head every generation or so uh, where somebody has decided that through their, you know, again, their, their own interpretation of their moral code, their own interpretation of, you know, it could be a religious belief, a political belief, how you see the social structure, deciding that you know what's best for other people. And ultimately, ultimately, that will impinge upon their rights and their individuality. And I can't think of one example in history where that has ever been a good thing. Right. I, you know, I, I mentioned only a, a couple of characters from history who we look back on and say, yeah, you know what? They went a little too far. Their ideas were a bit extreme. And we learned very quickly that we can't just sort of live under their narrow interpretation of what the human experience could or should be like. And it also has to do, it's not just history. It's kind of like mm -hmm. modern time right now. It's like, you know, sure. Fullerton is obviously the, the allegory of fear-based politics. And that's happening in the United States, yeah. especially right now. Yeah. 
And they say that Star Trek isn't political. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I do believe what Fullerton's saying here is that about the citizens of the Federation, at least, being soft, weak, ripe for conquest, doesn't that kind of sound kind of familiar with what's going on with kind of... And again, it's no... I mean, it's, it's a coincidence, obviously, but it does point out to the fact that if you have the right people in positions of key power believing a certain level of uh, religious or moral order, mm-hmm. and they can exercise those points of view onto the American people by either the manipulation of the press or the media yeah. or social fabric. Yeah. How dangerous is that? Well, it, it, it's, yeah, you, you said it perfectly. I mean, it uses fear as a bludgeon to keep people in line. So you, you can then attack this sort of, uh, you know, personal moral rot that you might see, that you might be offended by. But you're using this cloak of defense, of security for all of that. When, again, they're coming already from the position of power. The Federation, Starfleet, they're already powerful. They already do the things to protect other places and other people because that's their job. You know, we're, we're already in the United States. We're already armed to the teeth. Starfleet is already armed to the teeth. And part of the reason that they've done that is to then be able to afford themselves places like Ryza and be able to afford themselves the personal freedoms that go along with it. Ryza didn't land on New Plymouth Rock. New Plymouth Rock landed on Ryza. Well, here we've arrived at the end of our time on Ryza. So sorry to see it go. Although maybe this week we're happy to get out of there. It's just going to bring back bad memories for us. So as we wrap up the episode, you know, something that we we usually do is uh, if there's an interesting title to be dealt with, we'll, we'll maybe mention something about the history of that title. And I think I I think I found the source on this. Correct me if I'm wrong, Norman. I'm pretty sure that that title is an old saying: "Let he who is without sin not spoil the party for the rest of us." Um, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Oh, your Google's right on point. Okay, good. Right on point. Good. Excellent. All right. Just wanted to make sure. So, um, Norman, tell us, uh, you know, obviously we're going to talk about morals, meanings, messages, what we take away from this episode. But uh, before we get into that, as a production, how does this episode hold up for you in your rewatch here of DS9? Well, as you know, John, at the end of every episode that we take a look at the morals, meanings, and messages, and we ask ourselves, does this episode withstand the test of time? And I could say absolutely not for this episode, unequivocally no for this episode, but for these reasons. And I don't want to, I don't want to start a tirade about this episode as easily as I could because this episode really, really offended me in several ways. Mm-hmm. And no, I can see, like, say, in the first season of a series or even like in the second season of a series like The Next Generation or even here in Deep Space Nine, an episode that is so tonally uneven like this and somewhat preachy. Well, no, actually really preachy. <laughs> sure, I think that belongs in, in, that, in that era of the series as a whole. But take a look at where we are with season five of Deep Space Nine, how developed these cast and crew members have become. And then this episode takes place. You almost kind of wonder why. Why this episode, even as a filler episode, and you know how I feel about filler episodes, why? Mm -hmm. I really struggled with trying to get through this episode the very first time I watched it because I never really found anything noteworthy about this episode to discuss from a morals, meanings, and messages perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But I think it's because maybe I wasn't looking at it really the right way. Again, I said earlier that the tone that Dax and Worf took with each other at the very beginning in the cold opening kind of set the way that I was looking at this episode. And maybe that was unfair or maybe that was the point. But in general, for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, it's just it's a very below average episode across the board. The production values aren't that high. The swimwear is a dead, like, temporal giveaway <laughs> when it comes to 90 fashion. Yeah. But the one thing that really just bothered me, probably even more so than Dax and Worf, was 24th century Puritanism. Yeah. Why is that a thing? Right? I mean, this is like the 24th century where humanity, since we are talking about the Federation specifically, we're not talking about being on Ferenginar or being on Cardassia Prime or even being on, you know, the Klingon homeworld. We're talking about Ryza, the Federation, the Federation vacation sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Why are Puritans there railing against people's livelihoods and the way they're enjoying themselves? What is the point yeah. of that in the 24th century? I, I thought the whole point that in Star Trek, we're supposed to be past all that stuff to get to this point. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. So maybe that is the moral meaning or messages. Maybe the Federation has the capacity to be dictatorial if it really wanted to be. You know, like Fullerton says, if you want something to eat, you have a replicator. You're soft that way. If you want amusement, you go to a hollow suite or Ryza. You're soft that way. So you know what? When worse comes to worse, martial law. It's the only way to go, and we're going to tell you exactly how to feel and how to think and how to enjoy yourselves. And if not, reign for everybody. <laughs> well, look, I, I do not disagree with anything you're saying as far as the, the episode holding up. It, it's awful. That, that is my first line of my notes. This is awful. It, it's a disappointment because I actually I wanted to love this episode because I thought, wow, finally. Star Trek is doing something about sexual freedom in the face of a fundamentalist backlash. Sign me up for all the personal, social, political topics that Star Trek has taken on in the 30 years uh, up until now when this episode came out. Very rarely has Star Trek dipped its toes into that. You you could look at the Mark of Gideon in TOS uh, as being uh, a discussion on birth control. Yes, absolutely. You could look at every now and then in Next Gen, there is some inference about sexuality and relationships in the 24th century. But again, they sort of reel that back. Here, we're going back to the planet where we say, basically, people go there for sensual pleasure. And what happens when somebody or a group of somebodies is not cool with that? What then is Star Trek's statement about that? I w- when I first put this in and thought, cool, we're going back to Ryza, and look, there's somebody pushing against that, I thought, now there's an opportunity to really explore and define what this world is like in the 24th century where we're going to the most intimate of human experience. And they completely botched it up. Instead, what we got was this reheated relationship drama and we let the worst offenders off the hook. Mm-hmm. If it were me mm-hmm. in this situation, I would never talk to Worf again, and I would use every opportunity to remind everyone around me how he ruined a vacation for hundreds of thousands of people because the poor thing can't grow up and keep his emotions in check. 
No, no. Get to a Starfleet psychologist and come back when you're not a humorless killjoy. I mean, that's another thing that kind of bothered me. Now, I keep saying kind of because that's such a filler. That's a filler word for podcasters when they want to say um. Yeah. And I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it bothered you full stop. It, yeah. it bothered me full stop. And here's why. Because Worf was unapologetically sexist and intolerant to Dax. Yes. Unapologetically. And he was chastising not just her moral fiber, but the moral fiber of Bashir and Lita we don't even really mention Cork because he was really kind of like a non-offender. Yeah. But he was a bully this entire episode. He was a bully. And he not only bullied his friends, he bullied an entire planet of vacation goers. Why? And if he said, if you were a Klingon woman one more time, I literally, Ugh. if it was a disc in my disc player, I would have busted it in <laughs> half. That, <laughs> that in and of itself, every time he said that, I'm like, then go be with a Klingon woman. Yeah, Right. What's your problem? I'm like, what's his problem? Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So then all, all of that off my chest about, uh, about those problems with the episode. The production values are, are not great. You know, the location shots are nice. Some of them are nice. A little bit, Some of them are very soft. Uh, but everything feels very confined. So we don't have a sense of Rice's size. It, it feels like a reuse of very generic set pieces from TNG. Those sort of like beige walls. And when we don't know what to do, drape it in a little fabric. And, and again, just as for the writing, they never figured out the story that they wanted to tell. And they know it. That's why in the trivia, I tease the idea that Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf just said, like, yeah, this did not come out the way we wanted it to come out. And it's a shame because they're smart. They write good dialogue. They write depth in their characters that I feel like we haven't seen before, at least not much before. And this was an opportunity, again, to go to someplace that would not only have a personal and intimate relevance, but would also have a sociopolitical statement, and they just screwed it up. Now, let's get into those morals, meanings, messages. You, you, you hinted at some of them here. A- anything else you want to hit with, with this, Norman? Well, I think that there was a really decent attempt at trying to focus on trust, trust in relationships, trust the fact that, you know, these, these Federation people, they're not, they, they aren't becoming, you know, these, uh, these ultra, I guess, you know, these ultra soft, uh, dependent children that Fullerton thinks they are, you know, you have to trust the fact that everyone's kind of there doing what they need to do there for the right reasons. And you have to respect that you have to respect why. Uh, and I guess from, from the, the very start, again, that whole scene between Dax and, and Worf, it just felt like that, that old adage of, oh, dad or mom slapped each other across the dinner table verbally. Now what do we do? You yeah. know, thanks, Thanksgiving for many people, you, yeah. know, for, <laughs> right. you know, just to, just, right. just, just to put a little humorous spin on that, although that's kind of true. Yeah. So the other problem I had with this episode is um, that everything resolved itself the way that Star Trek technically always resolved itself like Worf is good with everything now in the last two minutes because he came to a uh, some type of uh, resolution thanks to his soccer story and Dax I guess that works not for me (laughs) so uh, I don't know you know I know I'm all over the board with my thoughts right now because that's where this episode has left me yeah 
it has yeah. left me all over the board because I don't really feel like I know exactly what they were trying to say. And it's very frustrating. And I do think that with some time to put together this type of story, which, again, has two very important points to, 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 uh, to, di- to digest, why even have the Bashir and Lita and Quark storylines going on there at the same time? Right. I mean— I know why, and, and like we bring up every once in a while, I know that there are contractual obligations for appearances in episodes. I get that. But still, that was just a lot of useless mm-hmm. time yep. wasted on not, ex, you know, not like uh, going into the, tr- the true exposition of, of, the, of the real important points. So anyway, yeah. um, in, in Star Trek fashion, the, the issues are usually tidily taken care of at the end, which didn't sit well with me. And like I said, nothing that a little skinny dipping can't take care of res- resolving things for Worf and, and, and Dax. But uh. trust doesn't work like that. It has to be earned. Trust has to be earned. Yeah. I mean, long story short, and what I'm trying to get to is that trust has to be earned over long periods of time with sacrifice, with understanding, and you just don't get over that lack of trust or that breach of trust just because you want to go swimming. Yeah, right, right. Precise. How about you, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you used a word earlier that I will come back to, uh, preachy. Uh, the episode is preachy, but we never got the why. Why should we support individual and RISA sexual freedoms? There was a botched opportunity here to actually make a statement. So it, it, it's it's bluster, but without the substance underneath it. It's preachy, but without an actual direction to go in this story. Now, Fullerton says in here that RISA is an illusion created by weather control systems, industrial replicators, seismic regulators. Yeah. And so what is your point, you jerk? <laughs> it's the second jerk in this episode. Because I would say that's what we do. We mold our spaces to fit us. We carve out the lives that we want. We tell the stories we want to tell, and we find meaning in the things that take our attention. We, quote-unquote, manufacture environments all the time. And, and sometimes those are just purely for comfort, for pleasure, whether it's your bedroom or it's Disneyland or wherever. You know, that, that is part of the human experience is our relationship to our environment. So I would take him to task there. I would also say uh, for a guy like Worf, uh, you don't elevate yourself by making everyone around you as miserable as you are. Worf is a petulant child, uh, hoping for the desired outcome that the people and guests of Ryza become depressed, bitter, and miserable like him. He's allowing his personal mood to dictate how he thinks others should feel. I'm sorry, that that is a bad personal trait. That is a bad trait for a Starfleet officer. And the, you know, for a guy who has such a fundamentalist attachment to his loyalties, whether it's being a Klingon or being a Starfleet officer, he sure does let his personal interests run away with him. And I would also say here that part of Fullerton's problem that then uh, expresses itself and gets adopted by Worf is that if you think that everything around you is a threat, that around every corner there is something waiting to attack, then that's exactly what you'll find. You, You will create those situations to prove that point. And that is... 
that's not the world. That's not the universe that uh, Starfleet has been trying to create. Again, Starfleet, I think here are the good guys, obviously taking care of places that allow people to be themselves, that allow people to live the lives and have the pleasure that they want to have. So they're doing it right. But it takes a puritanical jerk like Fullerton to come along and get petulant children like Worf to follow him to ruin it for everyone. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam. Shabam. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, things past. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Warp should get some credit. He may be the first person ever to go from Jamahar on to Jamahar off. Transmission Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network